Our scripture passage this morning is Matthew 7, 24 to 29. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hello, August. Here we go. Life is a mist. Let's redeem it and join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your kindness to us this morning in a whole host of ways. And we do ask that you would help us to make Christ our cornerstone. Help us to build our lives on him. Would you help us to be wise and not foolish? God, we're thankful for yet more babies born in this church for members. Thank you for the lives of Rex Mitchell and Kenya Chapman. We give you praise. Thank you that they're doing well. Mama are doing well in both scenarios. And we pray that you would just give them extra grace, extra patience, perseverance, sleep, joy in the midst of uh, newness. And we pray for both Rex and Kenya that they would come to know you at a very early age. Would you save them? Would you open their eyes to find Jesus as their treasure? God, we're so thankful to have the Campbells with us. We pray for their time here in Abilene as they're here for a brief time, that it wouldn't be tiresome, but it would be refreshing. Pray for just favor with logistics and, and uh, that Sammy would sleep well as well and that they would just be encouraged, refreshed, recharged. And as they head back home, God, that they would go with just renewed energy and zeal for the hard but glorious good work that you've called them to. Pray for favor with visas that you would work it out. We trust your sovereign plan. Would you grant us to be strengthened with power by your spirit that we would be a congregation rooted and grounded in love? Would you give us strength this morning to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of your son, Jesus Christ? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word endures forever. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our mediator, your son, the king who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, ever one God. Amen. Amen. Well, foundations are really important uh, in a lot of ways. All the Abilenians said amen, amen. but not just structurally. Foundations for our life are really, really important. And it's amazing to me how many people don't stop and ask some of the big questions of life. Like, what is it that we're building our life upon? So many of us, so many of your friends and coworkers and neighbors are the same way. You can really serve them by just asking a question. Hey, what are you living for? Provocative questions go a long way. It just gives the Holy Spirit fodder to get them examining themselves. As we were just saying. The scriptures use the imagery of a cornerstone for Jesus Christ. And the cornerstone in ancient architecture was the main stone. It was that most important. It was put down first on the corner and the rest of the structure would be aligned with it. And all people have a cornerstone. All people have something or person or place or ambition that they are building their lives around. And really everything in their lives is 
aligned to it. And so the question is, what is it? Maybe it's family. Maybe it's career. Maybe it's money or comfort or status, pleasure. All people have a cornerstone. All people have a foundation. And in this morning's passage, Jesus is going to teach us that our choice is of ultimate consequence. We're finishing up the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews 5, 6, and 7. If you're using one of our Bibles there in the chair in front of you, it's page 762. And in so many ways, the point of the last three sermons has been the same. Keep the commands of Christ. Jesus lays out these two ways that started back in chapter 7, verse 13, the narrow and the broad way, the true and the false prophets that bear the two types of fruit, good and bad, and then true and false professions, and now we have two foundations. Last time Jesus warned in Matthew 7, 21 to 23 that those who say, Lord, Lord, but do not do the will of the Father, will not inherit the kingdom of Christ. And this week, Jesus is going to warn those who hear, but do not do his words. So let's consider the wise man and the foolish man. Let me just tell you the point up front of this passage. The wise are those who obey Christ and will escape God's judgment. And the foolish or those who do not obey King Jesus and will face God's judgment. So let's consider first the wise. Look at chapter 7, verse 24 with me. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Jesus here, the Lord of the world, the Messiah, the King, he defines wisdom for us here. And what does he say? He says, wisdom is hearing and doing these words of mine. The wise person is the one who does the commands of Jesus. You know, so often today, our unbelieving friends think we're foolish the opposite of wise, for building our lives upon the words of this man who lived 2,000 years ago. But he, the one with all authority, says it's wisdom. And he knows best. God knows best. You know, it's getting harder and harder to be a Bible-believing Christian in American culture. It's probably just going to continue to be that way. And I've shared with you before that I don't get overly discouraged about the direction of the world the world's going to world. Pagans are going to do pagan things. I mean, it's discouraging in some ways, but I don't get overly discouraged about it. I'm not surprised by it. In other words, what I do get surprised and what I do get discouraged about is seeing the church compromise in order to fit culture. When they change the message or seek to soften the hard parts of Scripture, which again, increasingly, there's a lot of hard parts in Scripture. And they change it or soften it or compromise it to be more palatable to postmodern society. I submit this. God is wiser than we are. I was telling a friend recently, another pastor friend, and we were talking about our churches and I was bragging on y'all, as I love to do. 
And I thought, you know, in some ways, we would never put this in print, but in some ways, Southside Baptist Church, where we believe that God is wiser than we are. <laughs> he gets to define wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is inside. The wise person fears the Lord and the fear of the Lord shows itself in the keeping of his word. Jesus' wisdom is doing these words of mine. I love Proverbs chapter three. If you were here several weeks ago, one of our gospel partners named Anand Samuel preached this passage. If you didn't, if you weren't here, I would encourage you to go listen to the sermon. Such a helpful sermon because it's such a helpful passage. Let me read it to you. Proverbs three, my son, do not forget my teaching but let your heart keep my commandments. There it is, we're talking about wisdom. Verse two, for length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your hearts and do not, Lean on your own understanding. Do not rely on your own understanding. Do not trust in your own understanding. Verse six, rather in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Jesus here in the most famous sermon in the world says the wise person, wise person hears and does his word. I mentioned last time this verb for do is used 22 times in the Sermon on the Mount. It's just three chapters. And it's, it's translated various ways in our English so we don't always see it. I mentioned bear fruit is actually do fruit. In the original, it's the same verb. Give to the needy is actually do, same verb, to the needy. And so we see it again and again and again. It's really important to Jesus. In this final section that we're in, chapter 7, 13, to the end of the chapter, verse 29, Jesus uses this verb 10 times. Do, keep, obey the words of Jesus. And notice this again, last time we saw that it's the one who does the will of the Father who will enter the kingdom of heaven. And this morning, and in fact, look at it, chapter seven, verse 21, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. And notice what it is they are to do in our passage now, just a few verses later, these words of mine. And so there's this equation here, the will of the Father is the same as the words of Jesus. The will of the Father is found first and foremost in these words. And so we must not just hear them and not just study them and analyze them, not even memorize them. We must obey them. That's the point. That's where he's landing. And so he says it in four different ways. Remember hearing a pastor talk about t telling, commanding his kids, clean your room, go clean your room. 
And what he wanted was not for them to talk about it and analyze it and get in a huddle and talk about it and memorize it and look at the original language, diagram it, meet a week later to talk about it some more. No, he wanted them to go do it. Wanted them to go and clean the room. Oh man, how would our community and our country look different if those who profess to be Christians acted on even half of what they've heard? Jesus says wisdom is not content to hear the word and hear about the call to repentance. No, wisdom does the word. Wisdom actually repents. Again, the brother of Jesus says it very similarly. You know, James, if you read James, there's actually a lot of allusion to the Sermon on the Mounts. Listen to James 1.22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That was the problem last time, right? In 721 to 23, they said, Lord, Lord, we've done all this stuff. They had deceived themselves because they were saying certain things, but there was nothing, no change in their life. Be doers, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. In this sermon, in Jesus' discourse on discipleship, he teaches that the essence of discipleship is doing the will of the Father, which is shown to us right here in the teaching of Jesus. Doing matters. Obedience matters. I mentioned last time the importance of getting the relationship between faith and works right. It's a really important discussion. In some ways, it's what makes us Protestant. And if you're new here, we are a deliberately Protestant church. We love the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We are saved by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But we take all of Scripture, that's the starting point. That's not the ending point. We're saved by faith alone, but that faith can never be alone. It must go forth. It must issue forth in obedience. Or James would say, it's not real faith. It's demon faith. Even the demons believe intellectually. So we've got to get this right. Obedience is necessary, not as the ground or basis of our salvation, but as the necessary evidence that we have been truly saved. And again, all of you know multiple people right now that say they're Christians, but their life looks nothing like the things of God. Saved by faith, but that faith goes public in good works. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, has it right there just in a few verses. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Did you catch it? Saved by faith, not works but saved for works, for obedience, not by, but for. True Christians will obey the Lord. And if they don't obey the Lord consistently, if there's no attempt, there's no following, no striving, no repentance when they don't, they probably don't know the Lord. Again, 1 John's really helpful on this idea of what does it mean to be a Christian? Listen to the way he puts it so clearly in chapter two, verse four. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. 
and the truth is not in him. So the wise person obeys Jesus. And then Jesus gives this parable to illustrate his point. The wise man who hears and does the will of God, he's like a man who built his house on solid rock. Wise man's house is secure because he has a solid foundation. It can, it can weather the storm. And now the question comes, what does the storm represent? I think most of us have probably taken the storm, the rain and the floods and the wind to be the various trials of life. We even sung about that and we'll sing about that. But remember, one of the first rules of interpretation is context. Context, context, context. It's the same as the rule of real estate. And so the question, what's the context been? Well, we've seen it. I've kind of already mentioned it, but just to point your nose there in this book, what has, the been, what has been the consequences for disobedience so far in these four sketches that Jesus gives us? Look with me at chapter 7, verse 13. It's been judgment. Not, not the ability to endure trials, but judgment. So look at 13. It's enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And then the next one, look at verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Or look in verse 23. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And then here in our passage, verse 27, the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So I think the storm is actually imagery for judgment, just like it has been in the last three conclusions Jesus has given us. Do the will of the Father, keep my commands, or you will be judged. It's, the storm is final judgment. Just a side note here, lots of churches no longer talk about final judgment. It's just you don't really grow churches. You certainly don't make people happy by talking about final judgment. But let's just learn a little bit here from Jesus Christ. Let's learn how to preach from Jesus. How does Jesus preach? What would Jesus do? He would preach about final judgment. In fact, in four different ways. Again, I told you the point of this sermon has been the same. The last three sermons is because the point of what Jesus is saying has been the same. Jesus preaches about final judgment a lot. Because the consequences of our lives are of eternal consequence. Could not be more important. No less than four warnings. So the immediate context here around these verses, it makes more sense to see this imagery of this terrible storm as God's judgment, but so does the broader context, namely the Old Testament, where all over the place, storms refer to God's judgment, most notably Genesis chapter six and seven. How does God judge the world? A flood, a stormy flood. Let me read to you just a few other passages to show you what I mean. The prophet Ezekiel does so in chapter 13. Ezekiel 13, verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you've uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. 
And you shall know that I am the Lord God precisely because they have misled my people saying peace when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There'll be a deluge of rain. And you, O great hailstones, will fall and a stormy wind break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath. And there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones in wrath to make it a full end. And I'll break down the wall that you've smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus will I spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who've smeared it with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is no more nor those who smeared it. The prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord God. Isaiah uses the same imagery in chapter 28. Jeremiah uses the same imagery. Let me read from Jeremiah 23, verse 19. Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth. A whirling tempest, it will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. He says basically the same thing in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 23. Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the heads of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of of his mind in the latter days you will understand this proverbs chapter 10 verse 25 when the storm has swept by the wicked are gone nahum chapter 1 the lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble he knows those who take refuge in him but with an overwhelming flood he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness so just like jesus has been saying destruction and trees thrown into fire and departing from him The imager here is final judgment, which again means these words could not be more serious. You know, we sing kids' songs and do hand motions to this. We do it in our house. I think that's okay. We've even got a reggae version. Hey, don't be a foolish man. Build your life on the Lord. But this scene really could not be more severe. There's nothing silly or jolly about it. Jesus is saying that those who keep his words will escape judgment and those who don't will not. Having said that, standing on the solid rock of Christ and his teaching does also help us, doesn't it? Endure the various trials before that final day, whether it be sickness or sorrow or loss or being broke or broken. Depressed, down and out, discouraged, disappointed, disillusioned, antsy, anxious. It's true that standing on the solid rock does help us in this life as well, which is why we sing what we sing. When darkness seems to hide his face, what do we do? We know that his face isn't hidden. We stand on his unchanging grace. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. We know that God is for us in Christ because of the gospel. We know that God is good 
because of the cross. And we know that God is sovereign. And so even in the midst of trials, we know that he's for us. He's not punishing us. No, he's working all things for our good, which is being conformed to the image of Jesus, Romans 8. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. When through deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you, your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. Proverbs chapter one, whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. So Jesus says here, the house built on the rock, it endures. The person founded on King Jesus remains steadfast, unmoved, not giving way. Well, what about the foolish person? Our second point, the foolish. Go back to Matthew chapter seven, verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sands. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Very simply, Jesus says the foolish person is the one who hears the words of Jesus but does not do them. Notice these are church people. Jesus is not comparing Christians and non-Christians here, just like he wasn't in chapter 7, 21 and 23. Rather, he's comparing true and false converts. They both hear the words. They both go to church. They both listen to sermons. They both read Christian books. The difference is not between those who've heard and haven't heard here, but between those who hear and do and between those hear and disobey. What makes the difference? They both hear the word. Thomas Goodwin said, Judas heard all of Christ's sermons. Jesus says in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do what I say? If you hear and do not do, Jesus says you're a fool, a foolish person. And so Jesus is here, he's inviting us and he's pleading with us, don't be foolish. It's the height of folly to hear the words of the Lord of the world and then ignore them. If Jesus is the Lord of the world, and he is, then wisdom cries, follow him, heed his words, submit to him. His are the words of life. The point here is that the wise will endure God's judgment. They will escape it. The foolish will not. Everyone here this morning has heard. So the question for us is, will you hear and ignore the words of Jesus or will you hear and obey the words of Jesus? The consequences are eternal. Both groups heard the word, both groups faced judgments. The question for us is, will you stand or will you fall on that day?
your posture towards the words of Jesus will make all the difference. Maybe you haven't and you're flat out, nope, I have not. I have heard them, I know about them and I have put him aside, I've disregarded him, I've ignored him. But maybe you have a penitent heart, a broken spirit, you realize and that's a problem. There's good news for you. Jesus stands with arms wide open, ready to grant forgiveness. That's what the cross is all about. This is the heart of Christianity is that we fall short, but in grace, Christ provides forgiveness. Maybe that's you. It's good news for you. Come to Christ. If you have any questions to talk about this, we'd love to. Nothing we would rather talk about. But hear this. It's absolutely impossible to express the importance of the choice set before you today. If you do know the Lord, this parable, really the last whole chapter of Matthew 7, it should give us a sense of urgency for the mission that Jesus gave us. If this is true, if we believe in final judgment, we ought to be urgent about getting this gospel out. We need to be zealous for sharing the gospel, right? Do we believe these words? Let me encourage us, members of Southside here for a moment, or if you're involved with kind of the next step of Southside, we've got a lot of ways to take next steps. Some of the ways that we will, we offer that get us to pray together. There's lots. It can even be Sunday school classes, home groups, D groups. Let me encourage all the members of Southside to begin a practice. Some of it's already been talked about, but maybe you're not doing it. In those groups, whether it's even just informal friends, make a practice, begin making a practice of praying by name for people you know that don't know Jesus by name. And so then as you meet weekly, you can ask, hey, did you see so-and-so? Did you see so-and-so? Still praying. Praying for opportunities to share the gospel. I just think as we pray together, God answers prayers. But I also think as we write down names and pray for specific names and then also bring a little bit of accountability, I think God will go to work on that. So let me encourage you, begin by name praying for one another's lost friends in Jesus. Our whole house is for sale right now. Our whole, uh, our whole uh, street, I mean, maybe the whole neighborhood is for sale, but certainly our whole street is for sale. And I can't wait for people to move in. And so I just invite you to ask me, hey, you met your new neighbors yet? Because when they come in, I'm going to be like shark around blood. Our, our neighbors have been hard. We have not, I have not had a fruitful evangelistic time in Abilene. As hard as a pastor, I'm always around you people who know the Lord. But I'm excited about some new neighbors. Let me encourage you to begin praying for your neighbors, coworkers, by name, writing them down. If we believe this is true, it should move us to evangelistic action. Look at verse 28. Matthew 7, 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. They're astonished, they're amazed, they're dumbfounded by the way that he taught with authority, unlike their scribes. Scribes, of course, were those who were authorized teachers of the law. And notice Matthew's already beginning to put a little distance that he's going to do for the rest of this gospel between those Israelites who don't know Jesus and the disciples of Jesus. Notice how he says that, they're scribes. And this this is not what they were used to. Scribes would claim no authority of their own. They just strove to be faithful to the tradition they'd been handed. They spoke by authority. Jesus speaks with authority. I mean, even the biblical prophets didn't do that, right? Just think about what they would say. 
Thus says the Lord. What does Jesus say? I say. We've seen it so many times, I just want to read a handful of them in this sermon. Chapter 5, verse 18, truly I say to you. 5.22, but I say to you. 26, I say to you. 28, I say to you. 5.32, I say to you. 5.34, but I say to you. 5.39, but I say to you. 5.44, but I say to you. By the way, in all those, he's contrasting his teaching with what was in the law of Moses. Chapter 6, verse 2, truly I say to you. Chapter 6, verse 5, truly I say to you. Chapter 6, 16, I say. 25, I tell you. 29, yet I tell you. 23, I will declare. 24 and 26 of chapter 7, these words of mine. This is one who's teaching with authority. It's been a little while, but remember Matthew 1, 2, 3, and 4 leading up to this? Matthew has presented Jesus with all that Old Testament quotations, presenting Jesus as the new and true Moses. Remember, just like Pharaoh in Exodus, he kills all the Hebrew baby boys, but Moses is saved. And so also Herod seeks to kill all the male babies in Bethlehem, but Jesus is saved. Remember Moses in Exodus fast for 40 days. Jesus fast for 40 days in Matthew chapter 4, chapter 5. Jesus goes up on the mountain just like Moses goes up on a mountain to receive the law. Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is the final prophet that Moses pointed forward to as Bryce read for us. This is way back in Deuteronomy, this prophecy. 18 verse 15, the Lord your God, Moses says, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is the end time prophet. He speaks in his own name with his own authority. There's no hesitation, no hemming and hawing, no timidity, no apologizing. And his claims shock the system. If it weren't true, Jesus would have what C.S. Lewis called a case of rampant megalomania. You'd have some serious ego problems if this was just a mere human teacher. This carpenter from Nazareth says, many will say to me on judgment day. And he says, I will say to them. This carpenter from Nazareth says that he will say, depart from me on judgment day. This carpenter from Nazareth says, whoever does these words of mine will endure the storm. Spoke as one with authority. He is the decider of destinies. People love the Sermon on the Mount. I do too. I'm looking for ways of saying it a little longer. Everyone loves it. Everyone loves it. From any, any, any religious background, they love it, at least parts of it. They like the call to mercy, the call to make peace, love of enemy. One Hindu professor says this, still a current Hindu, the Jesus of dogma, meaning like what we believe about him, deity of Christ, those sorts of things. The Jesus of dogma, I do not understand, but the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount and the cross, I love and am drawn to. Or a Muslim Sufi teacher once said this, that when he read the Sermon on the Mount, he could not keep back the tears. But here's the problem. You can't just read parts and value parts of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a whole sermon. And you can't just pick and choose parts you like. Jesus speaks as one with all authority and his claim is astounding. Jesus says that human folly and human wisdom are determined 
by their responses to his teaching. If you do not build your life on my words, he says, you're a fool. He says, if you do not build your life on these words of mine, you will be judged by me. And part of that judgment is being separated from me, depart from me, he says. Who but God can speak like this? This is no mere man. Jesus Christ must be reckoned with. After this sermon, we're forced to ask, who is this Jesus? And how does he fit in my life? Friends, what is your foundation? What are you building your life upon? Jesus invites, he pleads, he warns, be wise, don't be foolish. Build your life on the rock. Let's pray together. I want to close this with an Anglican prayer. Almighty God, give us grace to be not only hearers, but doers of thy holy word. Not only to admire, but to obey thy doctrine. Not only to profess, but to practice thy religion. Not only to love, but to live thy gospel. So grant that what we learn of thy glory, we may receive into our hearts and show forth in our lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.